You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dunnis. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing all right, but I didn't just come off a jet-setting book tour. I back. I back, guys. I heard that you really you went down there to was it Houston, Texas. You, as promised, did a reading and then went to a bar. I heard you raged until the break at 9 p.m. Well, yeah. Uh, got some co-main event podcast listeners out to see me at all three stops. Portland, Houston, Phoenix, which I enjoyed immensely. In Houston, our uh, local ge- a local guide, I guess, there, Jonas, longtime listener of the podcast, had us go out to his favorite bar, Orphan or Poison Girl. Orphan Girl, that's the name of a mine here yeah. in Montana. Poison Girl is the name of the bar down there in Houston. Went there with, uh, you know, five or six co-maniacs. Uh, drank three Texan IPAs pretty fast, I will say. Uh-huh. Uh, hadn't had anything to eat. Started to feel a little bit drunk. Had to excuse myself. Go uh, get something to eat. <laughs> had to excuse yourself. Plus, I had to fly out early the next morning. I'm not a young man, Ben. I can't be out here. We know that. Going on and on until the break of dawn when I got to get up. We're aware. Before dawn to fly out to Phoenix. So was the book tour a success? Is it a bestseller yet? I mean, I don't have any numbers yet, but people were turning out to see me at every stop, which is good. You know, when you do a literary reading, it's always a 50-50 proposition whether or not it's just going to be you and a couple of people who work at the bookstore. Yeah. Uh, Where'd you go with as far as did you come up with any good uh, inscriptions we were talking about that was going to be perhaps an issue? Uh, I, I personalized as many as I could. A lot of people out there buying the paperback of Champion of the World, too, which is easy because then you can just go, you know, big time wrestling quote. Yeah. You can do if you've you got those in the back pocket. You, all can, the time. you can do if you're going to die, kid, die in the ring. You can do, uh, <laughs> you know, 200 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. 200 pounds, huh? I like to write, uh, you know, people are capital G guys. Okay. I like to write that in their books. I'm sure they appreciate that. Yeah. Well, it's true. Well, after you come get the book. <laughs> Once you come get the book, you're immediately a capital. We D press guy. the flesh. We take a picture. It's a great time. A lot of stuff has happened over in the MMA section since you've been gone. Yeah, well, fill me in. I've not been paying attention. Did you watch? There were a couple few MMA events this weekend. Did you watch those? Yeah, I took. It's going to be as, important later on. As many as I could. Yep, I watched them as many as you could, huh? Well, I'm not going to watch all seven hours of the UFC. Come on, <laughs> nobody does that. People do. People do, my friend. Well, now we're we're back, ready to do the damn thing. Yes, we are. Mailed out a bunch of koozies while you're gone. Did How you really? Because like everybody that I met was asking for their koozies. Well, maybe they need to check the mails. Check the mails, bud. Uh, before we move on, just a couple of housekeeping reminders here. Remember, if you didn't pre-order the Blaze, that's A-OK. You can still go out and get it right now on your Kindle or iPad or get it from your local bookstore. Uh, one more ask, though. If you do read it and you enjoy it, Please go leave me a five-star review over on Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you buy the books. Those things do matter. They do help. It's important for people to be able to find the book. 
We also have uh, merchandise available, as you know, if you want to get yourself a co-main event podcast logo t-shirt or any of the other offerings over at CottonBureau.com. Head over there, CottonBureau.com. We got Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts. We got Dundasso t-shirts. Those are always available all the time, on demand, whenever you want them. Just go to CottonBureau.com. Pick up some CME merchandise today. We got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com, The Fifth Element Official. And as you all know by now, that is the word the with an A. You know when I began to feel like as I was mailing out these koozies that people were fucking with me? The... You started to think maybe people were messing with you? Yeah. I mean, it's almost certain at this point that people who were not among the first thousand patrons yes. are getting koozies. Well, and it's, I was going to say that maybe it's almost certain that somebody eventually is going to trick me into sending a koozie to Jake the Snake Roberts' house. Well, yeah. Just, uh, I mean, now you said it on the air, so yeah. you're just basically giving people ideas. Uh, the point at which I had to really stop and consider whether this was something the CME faithful would do was when I was shipping a koozie to the town of Tynanware in the UK. That's made up. That can't be a real place, right? Was it hobbits running around in Tynanware? One can only assume it's a town of nothing but haberdasheries. <laughs> it's in the Shire, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Gotta be in the Shire. Just messing with you over there. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Junior Dos Santos makes us sad, but Curtis Blades makes us happy. Such is the way of the MMA world. And in round number two, how about that Chris Cyborg? Just going to roll up in here, beat Julia Budd, and accomplish some weird MMA version of the Grand Slam. What with championships in Strike Force, the UFC, and now Bellator. And in round number three... New compelling evidence that the computer simulation that is our lives is nearing the blue screen of death as Joe Rogan and Stephen A. Smith are beefing. They're beefing, Ben. I long for the blue screen of death at this point. Rogan and Stephen A. Beefing. Just pull the plug. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Cat Pope. He writes, do you think Michael Chiesa still has his Harley from that tough season? That's a good question. I feel like Michael Chiesa would not be the kind of guy to easily give up on a Harley. Should we text him and ask? Yeah, let's find out. Uh, let's see if he still has the, uh, see if he still has his, his Harley. Of course, Michael Chiesa gets a big win over there at UFC Raleigh this past weekend. Beats Rafael Dos Anjos in the co-main event. A welterweight fight. Unanimous decision. Uh, 30, 27, and 29, 28 times two. That would be Michael Keith Chiesa's third straight in the welterweight division. He's beat Carlos Condit, Diego Sanchez, and now RDA, so nothing to sneeze at. Gets on the mic after it's over. Calls out Colby Covington for July, which I got to be honest is not an idea that I hate at all. Book it. Give it to me. It's mine. Ben, what do you think about uh, Michael Chiesa's fitness as a 170-pound contender? Died in the wool at this point, or you still got questions? You know what? I was a little bit surprised at how easily he handled Rafael Dos Anjos. So because, I mean, for one thing, when you get them in there together, you can see the size difference. Just looks like a giant out yeah. there. It's increasingly unbelievable that he fought at lightweight for as long as he did. But then he had the good strategy to be able to use that size, use his ground game, and take away... 
uh, Rafael Dos Anjos' greatest strengths. And especially in the course of a three-round fight, if it's a five-round fight, it's a little harder to win that way, to just keep on him the way he did. Yeah. But in a three-round fight, you get a little bit of a lead, and you kind of got the guy. But it still, it seemed like he really did not have any trouble at all. No, it took him down essentially at will, kind of uh, with a blitzing striking attack that he used to set up some of his takedowns. I feel like a couple of different things happened here with Michael Chiesa. First of all, I agree with you, ultra impressive the way that he was go out, able to go out there and handle Rafael Dos Anjos. I got no problem with a Colby Covington um, fight at this point if they're going to do that in July. I got no problem with uh, the idea of Michael Chiesa as a top 10 top five welterweight contender at this point. But I also think you saw some of the things people can do to try to disrupt Michael Chiesa's game in this fight, even though he was pretty dominant and comes out with the unanimous decision. But Rafael Dos Anjos did some good work with the low kicks, especially the calf kick. Uh, he was able to uh, hit Chiesa a little bit in the striking game on the rare occasions that this fight was able to stay on the feet for longer than, you know, four or five seconds. Uh, I think he showed a little bit that, you know, Chiesa's, uh, I don't want to say vulnerable, but you can strike with the guy. He would clearly uh, prefer to be on the ground. And once he gets you there, he's pretty nasty. But at the same time, uh, I feel like we saw some of Michael Chiesa's weaknesses, but also some of his kind of overwhelming strengths in that weight class. I, I admit I had never even considered a Michael Chiesa versus Colby Covington fight until he had the very succinct call out. And then did the right thing. Didn't Ben Rothwell it by sticking around too long. Took off yeah. right after he got his point across and then left. Although he did also betray that Kiesa is too nice of a guy to just walk away yeah, completely. He's going to give you the handshake and the hug yeah. afterwards. Turned around to make sure DC got the handshake and hug and then he was out of there. But at the same time, you know, I like it. I frankly, and the people who have been listening to the show recently probably know that we are Michael Kiesa fans here on the Co-Main Event Podcast. But like, I like everything he's doing right now, to be honest with you. Yeah. He's obviously... Uh, he can cut it in the welterweight division, and uh, he he knows what to do on the mic as well. I would be really curious to see how his style matches up against Colby Covington's. And I think it's still... Colby Covington is still a, a enough of a lightning rod, even while he has to be quiet for a while with his jaw broken, that you can get people to raise their eyebrows a little bit of being like, hey, I want to fight this Colby Covington guy. And then if you go out there and beat him... Now you're somebody everybody's taken seriously in the welterweight division. Did you fire a text off? I, yeah, I sent him a text. Always. Text, text like, in the mail? You got that on Do Not Disturb, though. Of course I got it on Do Not Disturb. How are we going to know when the text comes we'll just, through? We'll do like this, and if you see a little alert on there, that's when we'll know. Okay. Got to check it periodically. Next question this week comes to us from the Corgi King. Okay. Dog lover, I assume. I mean, if that's not the case, I'm not sure I want to know what this is about. Who do you think had the better card this weekend, Bellator or the UFC? I personally think Bellator had the stronger card and had more exciting and compelling matchups, although it was fun to watch Nick Lentz lose. See, I'm going to have to kick this one to you because you watched these these two live by the time I was watching these fights. Yeah. Oh, you were doing the double screen. They had the dueling monitors. Had one on like the big monitor and one on the actual laptop. Got it hooked up on my standing desk in there. It was, though, a little bit of a... We've talked about this before, but it's a little bit of a weird moment when you have been with this sport for as long as we have, and you remember the days when it was like, man, you can only watch this shit on like shitty internet stream, and then we got big TV deals, everybody was on TV, yay, we're all so excited about that, and then now we come back around to where there's two major U or two major MMA events on from different MMA promotions on the same night, and neither one of them on the damn TV. Yeah, it's a streaming world out there these days. 
So yeah, that, that that's always a little bit of a uh, adjustment. But yeah, right. I was I had to like the thing is when you do it that way, it really forces you to consider because you got to think like where do I put where, who do I mute? Yeah, and sometimes you 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 have to make some hard choices. All right, here's what we had on the main card of Bellator two thirty eight. Uh, Emily King defeated Ava Knight via submission. Raymond Daniels defeated Jason King via TKO. Alfred Kokshakian. Nailed it. Uh, Sergio Pettis, I'm sorry, defeated. I'm just going to call him Alfred K because that's what we call him because we're friends. Uh, via submission. Juan Archuleta defeated Henry Corrales. Unanimous decision. Darian Caldwell defeated Adam Boric. Uh, that's a submission. Then, of course, in the main event, Chris Cyborg defeated Julia Budd via TKO in their women's featherweight title fight over at UFC Raleigh. You had uh, Jamal Hill defeat Darko Stosic. You had Angela Hill defeat uh, Hannah Cyphers. Uh, good wins for the Hill family there. Uh, they're not related, actually. You don't know that. I mean, I guess Have they looked don't. looked into it? I assume. If Angela Hill was related to someone in the UFC, we would know. Alex Perez defeated Jordan Espinoza. Michael Chiesa beat Rafael Dos Anjos. And Curtis Blades beat Junior Dos Santos. Ben, who had the better card? You're just talking about main cards, right? Is that what we're doing? I'm not going to run down all, like, 26 fights, I'd have to say. Well, especially with Bellator prelims. You know how many Bellator prelims they usually offer up? A lot. You're not doing that. You scroll down far enough. Where was this thing held? Uh, Oh, the the forum forum in in Inglewood. So you scroll down here far enough, you're going to get into some Inglewood natives down here uh, who were charged with selling tickets to the event to their family and friends. You know, I guess it depends what you prioritize because from the the Bellator main card, I think, had more fights where I was like, okay, I'm interested in this person. I care about where this is going. That's, I guess, what I would say more because it's like – you had Darian Caldwell go out there and beat Adam Borks, Borks business, hashtag Borks business. Setback for little, the Borks business. A little setback, but the first such setback for the Borks business. It's a bear market right now. And then right away they're able to be like, and up next is like A.J. McKee in this turn. They have A.J. McKee in the cage. They do the nose-to-nose stare down and you're going, all right, like you're building towards something. Yeah. Here. I like it. That's the beauty of the tournament. It is. The beauty of the bracket. It just automatically makes everything seem more meaningful. And then you had, you know, Chris Cyborg versus Julia Budd versus... It was really impressive to watch Cyborg and to be reminded how long Cyborg has been so good and so dominant. And this was one where you saw her do some different stuff. It wasn't just going out there and and blitzing somebody. So it was like, okay, there's a new champion's crowned. It's like a... An important moment in MMA history, basically, to watch her get yet another belt. And so when I compare it with the UFC, where it was like, I mainly care about the top two fights, co-main and main. The co-main, Michael Chiesa gets that win over Javier Dos Anjos, but then you're going, all right, he wants Colby Covington next. Maybe he'll get it. Maybe he won't. Maybe it'll just be six months goes by and we won't hear anything about what's going on with him. And then at heavyweight, you know, you get Curtis Blade gets a win and afterwards you're going, all right, but now we don't even, we're not even talking about a getting something on the books right. date-wise for the heavyweight title. So we don't know what the hell's happened. So it was like, okay, I those are good fights that are important and the people involved are important, but I don't know where we go from there. Bellator had that advantage over them. I yeah. Think. Okay, we're going to go here next because it's topical. This one from Chris Paul. I don't know if that's his real name or if this is NBA superstar. I mean, it seems like it could be a common enough name. Chris Paul. Guys, oh, is it... Oh. We getting something from Kiesa? 
The answer to the question, does Mike Chiesa still have the the Harley from Tough? This is breaking news breaking here news. on the Co-Main Event Podcast. Quote, yep, I sure do, and it's named El Lobo Negro. The Black Wolf? The Black Wolf. Holy shit. Breaking news, people. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's what you get here on the Co-Main Event Podcast. Straight from the mouth yep. of Michael Chiesa. We're going to go on here with Chris Paul, who writes... Guys, is it wrong to be ste- Team Steepe here? Uh, maybe all this talk is a negotiating tactic for more money for a rematch with Cormier, but if it's for real, I can't say I blame him. He has little to gain and everything to lose. Plus, maybe all that anger over Cormier avoiding him to fight Brock Lesnar, lol, remember that, was real. If Habib can really be about that life, would it be shocking if Stipe was too? So Ben, Stipe Miocic, current UFC heavyweight champion, he was out... For most of quarter four in the uh, at the end of 2019 with an eye injury, now he has been cleared to return. We've all been expecting Miochus versus Cormier. Miochus is playing a little coy here. Says he, he wants to fight someone he hasn't beat before. I think either according to him or his manager. I can't remember which one. Are you buying it? Do you think Stipe would, uh, would fight somebody like Curtis Blades or the winner of uh, Francis Ngannou versus uh, the Biggie Boy? Or do you think that uh, this is all smoke? And mirrors, it's a negotiating tactic, as Chris Paul suggests, and we are going to get Steve Miocic versus DC3. Well, when you say he's been cleared, like the, I pulled up this MMA fighting report, and this is like, I think two days ago, of him talking about being cleared, but it didn't sound like he was cleared, or at least to, in his telling of it, didn't sound like he was cleared in the sense where he was like, all right, and we are full steam ahead. We're ready to get back in there because he is talking about it being his damn eyes that we're talking about. So he's like, I think here's the quote. There's no timeline. He says, not right now. I just got cleared. So take my time getting back in the swing of things. We'll figure it out. We'll see what happens. Quote, I want to be able to see out of both my eyes when I get older. So that's all I really care about right now. I love fighting, but my health's more important. And he's saying like how he's been trying to ease back into sparring, but it's been five months since uh, he's been sparring. So... Uh, he needs some more time to even know, like, here's where I'm going to be. And when you have the belt, maybe that's a luxury you feel like, now I can suddenly afford to do that. They have to wait on me. Yeah. But it does seem, knowing what we know about the UFC and the way these things usually go, that there will be a limit on the patience the UFC brass will have with Stipe Miocic's return. Like, if he, if a couple of months goes by and he's like, I'm still not ready to set a date, man, we're going to start looking through that supply closet for an interim belt and you know it. Yeah. I get the impression and maybe I'm just reading too much into this, but again, from the, uh, uh, the Aaron, uh, Bronstetter interview with Dana White, where he gives the, uh, the odds and Dana White, Mm -hmm. uh, says where he's going to bet for the, what's going to happen in the UFC for the next year. I got the impression that they've got a plan for the heavyweight division in 2020, uh, surprised me in one of the questions. I believe he responded that he would take the odds that Brock Lesnar would return for at least one fight. Uh, and I just, some of that kind of made me think, okay, the UFC has a plan here and I would wager that the first fight in that plan for the heavyweight division would be Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier 3. I don't know what other fight they would make, uh, depending on obviously when Stipe can return to active duty. Uh, but that just seems like the one to make, like, I don't know, you know, obviously Francis Ngannou has, has all the potential in the world and the sky's the limit there, but like, would people really want us line up to watch him fight Miocic again, considering how the first one went? I think it would be interesting, but it clearly wouldn't make 
the company as much money as a as a Cormier three fight. Curtis Blades, uh, who we'll talk about in a minute, obviously is another guy who could be a future champion, but uh, he's not he's not blowing things up at the box office right now. So I would have to think Cormier versus Miocic is the UFC's number one option. Yeah, unless you feel like you can't book it in a reasonable amount of time. Because even talking about before I heard the last thing I heard from Daniel Cormier before he started calling out Stipe a little more forcefully. Be more, honorable. Be honorable. Do the honorable thing, he says. He was saying it looks like summer would be the earliest that we could get something done, which is a long time to sit around with the heavyweight division not knowing what we're doing. And if you can't start to plan for something a little more concretely soon, then it really does make it tough on everybody else because you're trying. You're going to turn around and try to sell me Francis Ngannou versus uh, the Biggie Boy as a number one contender fight for yeah. sure. And you can't really do that if you don't even have the next title fight booked and we all are under the understanding that we're waiting for a rubber match. Yeah. Next question as we come to us from Buck Pierce, who writes, So Tiago Alves has decided to join the Bare Knuckle FC. What does this say about the state of fighter pay in MMA that a veteran such as Alves would choose this over any other organization? We do enjoy hearing from the offensive coordinator of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Go Blue Bombers, by the way. Yeah. Now, see, inherent, though, in this question is the assumption that Tiago Alves can, in fact, go any, anywhere. And we, we don't know that. We don't know what the offers were like for Tiago Alves' uh, services once he hit the free agent market. Well, it makes sense in a way because if you think about who the other likely bidders would be for Tiago Alves' services, uh, you know, you, you basically got Bellator, maybe PFL, and then... You got the outlier here, kind of the the fringe of the combat sports world, bare knuckle FC. Yeah. And for Bellator and PFL, the appeal of Tiago Alves would be a little more limited. Bellator would be like, well, we don't want to really pigeonhole ourselves as where where UFC former title contenders go to ease into retirement. And PFL would maybe make you the offer of, hey, this could be very lucrative if you win a whole bunch in a short amount of time. Yeah. Otherwise, maybe not. Whereas BKFC has more of an incentive to go out and get a guy like Tiago Alves because they are still struggling to get people to pay consistent attention to it and be like, hey, this is a real thing. A guy like Tiago Alves lends you a little bit of credibility. You have a former UFC title contender. He's going to come over there. He's got the kind of style where people will be like, I might actually like to watch that guy in a bare knuckle fight. So they have more of a reason to want to go scoop him up than somebody else does. Maybe that plays a role in what the contract offers look like. Yeah, we've talked before about Bare Knuckle FC being somewhat shrewd at this point about inking these MMA fighters, these UFC veterans that... You know, maybe they're not the biggest stars in MMA, but you start to hear about them in a bare knuckle fight and you start to think, huh, might watch. Hashtag right. might watch. And depending on who you get for an opponent, you could book Tiago Alves anywhere between like 170 and 200 pounds and put him in there in a bare knuckle boxing match and people will go, all right, damn it, I do kind of want to see that. And, and it plays to the guy's strengths, right? Like he's a, a guy who likes to strike. So, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe he thinks Bare Knuckle FC is uh, is the place for him. Maybe he wants to do a uh, sort of a uh, Joey Beltran thing, sort of a uh, Beck Rawlings when she was the queen of Bare Knuckle boxing there for a while. I, just, I do wonder a little bit, like, what's it like when you have to call home and tell them, like, 
you know, you're FaceTiming with mom and dad or whatever. And uh, they're like, so what's new? Uh, what's new in the career? And you're like, well, funny you should ask. I've decided to, I'm going to go do some bare knuckle boxing. And uh, I feel I feel good about it. I feel like it's a good next step for me. And before you even finish the sentence, your mom's on a plane to, <laughs> to come and hit you over the head with a sandal. Yeah. Like just... You can imagine the the stares you would get. Yeah, see, if I was going to go into uh, Bare Knuckle FC, that's the point where I start lying to my parents. I start building a uh, an elaborate fantasy version of my life. Where I'm like, yeah, you know, I decided to give up on fighting. I went back to school. I got mm-hmm. my business degree. I'm just starting out at this exciting new company. I'm going to be a junior see, manager. Already, I can feel how this is going to fall apart under questioning. Yeah. You. I, I'm doing businesses. I, I'm doing a lot of businesses every day. Just doing so many businesses. Oh, you know what? I should honestly get off the phone. I got to do a business right now. The businesses world is crazy right now. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Jurgen Klopp. Okay. Is Jurgen Klopp the coach of the U.S. men's national team? Soccer uh, luminary. Yeah. Jurgen Klopp. Just as I was about to load up with a McGregor-fueled tirade, the tragic death of Kobe Bryant over the weekend had me thinking that perhaps... We need to appreciate and enjoy the wonderful athletes and our loved ones who bring us so much joy and entertainment while we still can. Please discourse. So okay, then- now, Jurgen Klopp is the guy. Now I, I, I looked at him up, and now I know this. He's the guy. Uh, he's the manager of Liverpool, and he got the, the teeth, the the giant, mm. unnaturally white teeth. And he looks like a nicely quaffed beard. No, he's he's a well groomed man. Look at these teeth, though, man. Look, what's come on? Oh wow. First of all, it looks like he has too many. Because he has like four too many teeth. He's got two, two mm-hmm. rows of teeth like a shark. Come on. Look at this. He's like a, it's like a normal person, but like with the teeth of a comic book strip character. Those are rich people's teeth right there. Yeah. You, you, you and I can't afford teeth no. like that. You've got some money and you've got some time to go to the dentist and get your shit all fixed up. Um... Yeah, that's Kobe Bryant thing. Tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter over the weekend yeah. in a helicopter crash uh, in the Los Angeles area. And so, like seven other people, too. So, I mean, let's not forget that. Either. Right. Not only a public tragedy because Kobe Bryant passes away in his early 40s, but also because, you know, his young daughter, who I think was 13, 12 or 13, uh, passes away. So sort of like a, a double tragedy here. Uh, it's, and shocking, obviously, because you're not hanging around thinking that a that Kobe Bryant is going to be the next celebrity that you hear about passing away. No. Very sudden, very unexpected. And so uh, the entire sports and media world kind of held in the uh, in the shock of this story over the weekend. You know, one of the things that it's weird because it, it hits me on two levels because I remember growing up in the L.A. area when Kobe Bryant was like a teen- teenage phenom for the Lakers. I remember going to a Laker game during Kobe Bryant's rookie year, which was not a great year for the Lakers, but I remember going and at first being disappointed because Shaquille O'Neal wasn't going to play that night. And then, like, a teenager who was not that much older than me playing for the Lakers and being one of the bright spots. I remember they lost that game, and it was not a particularly fun game to watch, but Kobe Bryant was one of the bright spots. And it, it, it was easier to put it in perspective because it was like, there I am sitting there in the crowd... Uh, feeling kind of lucky to be holding on to a starting linebacker spot for a middling high school football team. And this guy who is just a little over a year older than me, uh, 
was out there playing professional basketball against giant grown men. And because of the, the proximity in our ages, it was easier to understand what a kind of unimaginable feat that was. Especially you see him doing super well against these giant grown men. But then there's also like something like this where Kobe Bryant dies suddenly in a helicopter accident. And you're going like, okay, I, I'm we're still about a year away in age and it, I'm not ready to die suddenly like that. So like you, you really understand like what a huge loss it is just on an immediate level for like his family. And then when you see all these other people who uh, were affected by Kobe Bryant one way or another, either like as a player or as the, especially in more recent years, uh, the stuff he was doing outside of basketball. Yeah. Part owner of body armor, if I'm not mistaken, the, uh, the uh, sports drink that sponsors the UFC, and he had been kind of around the the MMA world a little bit. Uh, he might be a might have been a WME client, but he was uh, isn't everybody did some uh, did some appearances with the UFC. Of course, uh, you know it's interesting to in this email from Jurgen Klopp to link Kobe yes. Bryant and Conor McGregor because they both have somewhat uh, complicated legacies at this point. Of course, Kobe Bryant was charged with sexual assault. Uh, Though those charges were ultimately dropped against him, he settled in a civil suit with the accuser uh, during the the early 2000s. Conor McGregor, of course, linked to two separate sexual assault investigations in uh, in Ireland, as far as we know, ongoing, according to the New York Times. And it, especially with Kobe Bryant, who passes away unexpectedly and uh, prematurely in in this sort of like unforeseeable accident. It clouds the discussion of, of him immediately following his death just because people are going to react to it all kinds of ways. And frankly, I think that's okay. Like, uh, you know, people are going to lament the loss of Kobe Bryant and what he meant to basketball and what he meant to the entertainment world and what an icon he was, uh, probably a top five player in the NBA all time. And so, you know, people are going to... Uh, definitely mourn all of that. And at the same time, you have the, the this other side of him, uh, the, the sexual assault charge that was leveled against him, you know, I guess pretty early in his NBA career. 2003. Yeah. So, uh, he know, was 24, 24 years old. And like, I, I guess I come from the, the point of view that I think you need to be able to talk about all aspects of a public figure's, yeah. Uh, legacy, especially after their death. I understand that right now it's kind of a raw time for Kobe Bryant fans, clearly a, a tragedy for for the family. It seemed like uh, all of Los Angeles was stricken in, and in mourning due to the unexpected nature of this death. But at the same time, like uh, it does seem right to me to be able to to discuss the, like the the entire uh, breadth of his legacy and part of that clearly is the the incident in Colorado early in his career well but one thing like especially if you're comparing it with the McGregor stuff and we compared it earlier before too because when you wrote your story about how is the UFC going to deal with it and how will the MMA media deal with it when Conor McGregor comes back and comparing it to how NBA media had dealt with the Kobe Bryant stuff yeah and in one hand, it's tough to compare the two because we have a lot more distance from the Kobe Bryant thing and so a lot more of it had a chance to play out but in reading about it uh, now, you know, people were kind of revisiting it more recently. And for one thing, it wasn't, it didn't appear to be part of a pattern of behavior on Kobe Bryant's part where he was doing a whole bunch of stuff where there were crimes that were captured on camera and then another crime he was accused of that wasn't, which is what we have with Conor McGregor. 
And with Kobe Bryant's, he also, uh, the day, uh, the day the criminal case against him was dismissed, basically because they felt like they, uh, after a long time and a long period of like discovery and thinking about whether they're going to go to trial or not, eventually decided not to, uh, continue on with the trial after though he was charged. He issued this statement in which, uh, Right away, he apologizes to the woman, apologizes to her family, says uh, explicitly, I also want to make it clear that I do not question the motives of this young woman. No money has been paid to this woman. She has agreed that this statement will not be used against me in the civil case. Although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. After months of reviewing Discovery, listening to her attorney, and even her testimony in person, I now understand that she feels that she did not consent to this encounter. Which, I mean, there's a lot of things you could say about that statement and, and you know, the help he had authoring it and everything yeah. and why he ended up making the statement when and how he did. But at the same time, it seems like very different from what we are used to getting out of other rich, powerful male celebrities in a similar situation. Yeah, especially t today. And I think that, you know, one of the things I noticed when I went back and read about the Kobe Bryant case while I was working on that Conor McGregor story is that uh, a lot of it played differently through the eyes of 2019, 2020 than it did at the time. Like, uh, I think that, you know, history might have judged Kobe Bryant somewhat har more harshly had it happened today rather than if it you know, had happened almost 20 years ago. And I don't think you would have got that kind of statement uh, out of a professional athlete or a, a professional entertainer today. Uh, you know, the, and I think you got to give credit to this statement for being honest, like for not just being sort of a, uh, you know, a glossy apology or a f false apology. But also I think if, if that statement was issued today, people would see it as uh, an admission of guilt in some ways. And so, uh, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on the Kobe Bryant case, so a little bit of it is still up in the air for me. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like, you know, in the in the wake of a person's death, I do want to be able to talk about their entire legacy and not only talk about them as a sports figure or only talk about them as a, a you know, a person who may have done bad things off the court. I think you got to try to take the whole thing kind of together and deal with all of it, even though it feels somewhat raw to do it in the, in the wake of that person's death. Yeah. And that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. I would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben Curtis Razor Blades Saturday at UFC Raleigh down there at PNC Arena. It's the second round TKO victory over Junior Dos Santos in the heavyweight main event. Pretty impressive showing here from Curtis Blades, who, despite the fact that he came into this fight ranked number three officially in the UFC heavyweight division, still at times feels like an under-the-radar contender just because he is not one of these flashy guys on the short list of people that we're talking about 
to be next up for Stipe Miocic in the heavyweight title. But this was his third win since his November 2018 TKO loss to Francis Ngannou. In fact, at a, with a record of 13-2 and two with one no contest, both of Curtis the Razor Blades losses are to Francis Ngannou. Uh, he is 28 years old, so a baby in the heavyweight landscape. Yeah, and a guy, damn zygote. A guy who seems to have all of the skills uh, makes... You know, pretty efficient work here at Junior Dos Santos, although I think we should talk a little bit about how this fight went. In the wake of it, though, I will I will start by asking you this. How does this make you feel about Curtis Blades? Where do you see Curtis Blades right now in the 265-pound division? Well, it is worth noting that he is basically, for his entire career, 13 and Francis Ngannou. Yeah, for the most part. The, yeah. the one no contest was one that he won and then was overturned because he tested positive for marijuana. Boo. Which... Come the fuck on. That's some shady athletic shit. Athletic commissions. Uh, the Francis and Gunner, I mean, the first one was a doctor stoppage after the second round. The second one was a little more emphatic, where Francis and Gunner hit him with like a glancing blow that set off a, a TKO finish. But hey, a lot of people going to go in there and feel that Francis and Gunner power and not be up to it. So it's not like that's a huge uh, shame or anything, but it does make you wonder. Does that stand as a roadblock in his way in the heavyweight division? I think, for me, the, the best thing that could happen for Miami area private detective Curtis Razor Blades is if Francis Ngannou goes out there and gets upset by Jairzinho Rosenstruck. Like, if he loses, that, if he gets knocked out in that fight, which I don't think that will happen, but it's not unthinkable. Right. A couple big heavyweights throwing heavy leather at each other. You know, it can always happen. That would be great news for Curtis Blades. Get him out of the way. And then I think Curtis Blades matches up really well against a lot of other people in that division. However, does he match up well against two of the very best in the division? Like a guy like Stipe and a guy like Daniel Cormier. Daniel Cormier might be headed out the game pretty soon, but then we've heard a lot of people say that and not, not really come to pass. But when you look at what Curtis Blades brings to the table, does he match up well against the very best in the division? I feel like those specifically would be really intriguing matchups because, you know, they all have the same strengths, essentially. Cormier, Miocic, and Blades are all are all wrestlers who can also strike. And so it could be a recipe for a bunch of terrible fights, as sometimes happens when you get guys who have uh, very, very similar skill sets in the octagon for a mixed rules cage fight. But at the same time... Uh, I'm not going to tell you Curtis Blades couldn't win those fights. Like I think he goes in as more or less a, a a push against both of those guys. And and the I guess the big thing he's got going against him, like you said, is just the Francis Ngannou sized roadblock that has been placed between him and the heavyweight title. Uh, it's a little bit tough to have those two losses on the books to Francis Ngannou if you are Curtis Blades. And aside from that, you know, despite the fact that he is obviously extremely skilled and extremely good in this division. Uh, he just doesn't collect the headlines that, you know, a Francis Ngannou does kind of by the sheer force of his physicality and the way that he fights. He doesn't get the headlines that a guy like Daniel Cormier gets. He doesn't even really get the headlines uh, that a guy like Derek Lewis would get just from, you know, being yeah. kind of a, like a marketable personality. Is his balls even hot? Exactly. I mean, come on. We don't know. We, we don't have know. No temperature status check on Curtis Blades' balls. We would have to speculate. But you know what is on his side? 
time. Time may, in fact, be on Curtis Blades' side since he is 28 years old. He might just get the UFC heavyweight title because everybody else dies. <laughs> He's like the last guy left. <laughs> You're assuming there'll be no new people joining the UFC heavyweight division. When was the last time? I mean, you're just looking at the. You still got. Uh, you still got uh, uh, Alexander uh, Volkov and Alistair Overeem hanging around. Blago Ivanov. I mean, you start scrolling down here. I mean, I guess Cyril gone. First of all, Blago Ivanov is going to fight till he's eighty, and you know that. But Alexei Olenek. I, I see your point. That not a lot of hot twenty-one-year-old prospects in the UFC heavyweight division at the moment. The the this fight against Junior Dos Santos. When you watch actually what happened there, do you come away from that going Curtis Blades is a four real heavyweight contender, or do you come away going Junior Dos Santos is making me increasingly sad? Well, both. I mean, the demise of Junior Dos Santos can't be ignored. Clearly, this is his second loss in a row. He also just got knocked out by Francis Ngannou, but it has felt like it's a tough couple of fights for. An old battler like JDS. It sure is. You know, he's in his mid-30s now. And it has felt, despite the fact that he had this three-fight winning streak right before these two fights, it has felt like JDS has been trending down for a while now. And uh, particularly when you take into account the like physical ordeals that he has been through out of the cage recently, it's it's tough to forecast him on an upward trajectory. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's you got, I think you got to look at this. Uh, the scope of his career and say Junior Dos Santos's best days as a UFC heavyweight are probably behind him. And yeah, that does, I think, make everyone sad because Junior Dos Santos uh, is a universally beloved figure. He seems like the nicest guy in the world. He, you know, the the cliched uh, example is the the story that they used to broadcast on the UFC uh, pay-per-views when he was coming into his own about how he grew up in a, like a crime infested neighborhood where everyone was turning to drugs, but he decided to sell ice cream on the streets. Sold ice creams. Just, yep. uh, almost the nicest person in the world. Or when he's standing there with his face all swole up after a fight and the crowd is booing and he asks almost innocently why they do that. Yeah. I still really remember, to know. I still remember when they told him how many people had watched the, uh, Cain Velasquez fight in Brazil yes. And he got this amazed look on his face, and he was like, I'm famous. <laughs> yes, you are, Junior Dos Santos. So, yes, you are. Do you think that this fight signals an end to either the Junior Dos Santos as serious heavyweight title contender, or at least the end to the time of Junior Dos Santos as a guy you can have somebody else beat up to prove that they are a serious heavyweight title contender. I mean, are we going to enter the fun fights phase for Junior Dos Santos? Like, let's look around for some peers who he could fight. Well, if the landscape of the heavyweight division teaches us anything, it's that you can almost never roll the credits on somebody in this division. For all I know, Junior Dos Santos could be hanging around another 10 years. But uh, he certainly doesn't seem like a guy who's going to jump up and suddenly be the champion. But at the same time, you get a couple wins. You're right back in the mix. Maybe somebody gets hurt. The The path between uh, the outside looking in and a heavyweight title shot is not as long as it is in some of the other divisions. So it, while I feel like Junior Dos Santos has entered sort of a uh, maybe not uh, totally depressing, but like perhaps uh, – uh, not, concerning, not yeah. concerning time in his career for those of us who like to watch the guy fight. But at the same time, kind of like Donald Cerrone, you look at the career of a guy like Junior Dos Santos and you have to ultimately come to the conclusion that there was really no other way it was ever going to go. 
Like, he's just going to hang around until it gets uncomfortable, and then probably hang around some more. And then fight Tim Sylvia in a bare-knuckle boxing match. Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. But yeah, in, in answer to your first question, I feel like Curtis Blades is for real, man. I mean, early on in this fight, when Junior Dos Santos was able to kind of evade a couple of the takedowns, you started to think, oh, maybe this thing... Uh, is going to go the way of JDS. Maybe he's somewhat more of a live dog here than the odds would have led us to believe. And then second round, minute and six seconds into the second round, Blades just strokes him. Well, and see, that's the thing is I feel like Curtis Blades beats almost everybody in the heavyweight division right now except for number three, two, and one. I feel like those guys all beat him. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've number seen three him. is Francis Ngannou, who already has beat him twice. The other two guys, I think, also beat him. And so it's... That's a tough spot to be in. Yeah, I would watch those those other two fights, though. I would like to see how those go. I don't know that you could necessarily count them out. You and 100,000 other people on pay-per-view <laughs> would love to just watch them. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, and then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, so you mentioned before how I'm sitting there, I'm doing my uh, my dueling screen thing, and it can be kind of a weird thing to go back and forth where you're watching UFC, you're watching Bellator, you're mutant one, you're letting the other, and sometimes you lose track, to be honest. Sometimes you, you think you have one muted and then you realize after a couple of minutes that you're hearing audio from a different one. Than so you're, you're, watching you're watching the UFC, one. but, uh, big John McCarthy and, uh, and especially Goldberg calling the action with all the crossover of commentators and sounds and whatnot. It can get legitimately confusing. Maybe you throw a couple few soda pops in the mix and you get even more confused. <laughs> Is that all it was? Soda pops? And then at some point, I'm watching and I am hearing Dana White's voice in a promo. And I'm going like, oh, I must I must be... Wait a minute. No, I I have the Bellator audio going. And I'm hearing Dana White's voice. Was he in the, was he in the cage being like, I just bought Bellator? <laughs> it was part of a promo for Chris Cyborg and mentioning uh, Chris Cyborg's friction with the UFC, with Dana White in particular, him basically telling her, like, good riddance. And I just came away going, are you fucking kidding me? Bellator going to really shoot you straight. Bellator not afraid to, like... You, the thing I like about Bellator, Bellator not afraid to admit they read the internet. The UFC is afraid to admit they read the internet. The Bellator had, like, a screenshot from, like, an MMA mania post. Or like a bloody elbow, like some one of those. Like I, you know, you recognize the like website template, and they both kind of look the same. But it was like they had a screenshot from that. They're using uh, Dana White footage that they got from uh, MMA websites a few weeks ago. Before more Ronaldo's on a Bellator thing, mentioning Sean Alshadi's story from the Athletic. Bellator not afraid to read meant to admit that they read the internet. The UFC acts like oh no we. We don't. Are there MMA websites other than UFC.com? We didn't even know. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Got into it, even though it's confusing at times. Can we address the elephant in the room? What's that? The razor phone. Can we address the razor phone? What do you want to know about the razor phone? What's going on with the flip phone, man? What's you posted this picture online mm-hmm. of you with your admittedly kind of high tech dual screen setup yep. there in your office, sitting on the desk between the computers, is a razor flip phone. Yeah. The, uh, Did a time traveler break into your house and leave that there as evidence? It's the height of uh, cell phone coolness. No, cell phone cool level. No, it's it not. Peaked, it peaked with the razor. Listen, I what's walk- happening with the razor, Ben? Tell, walk- give it to the people straight. The people want to know. I walked up the street into a Verizon store in Queens, New York, in 2006. Bought the razor phone and felt like a real fucking cool guy. <laughs> 
And then recently I came across it while cleaning out some stuff and I was like, well, I can't throw away the Razer phone. I just want to, I just want to have it there. So and now I have, it's more of a, a totem, you might say. I'm going to throw it away. See, I, I thought, number one, maybe you were looking for an old phone number. Like maybe you had to get a hold of uh, MMA Fighter circa 2007. How you'd even charge one of those up. These, I don't know. I don't have any clue. The other thing I wondered was whether or not you had reached professional wrestler status where you needed to have a second cell phone just for your girlfriend and your PEDs hookup. Like, this is my phone where I, my family calls me. This is my phone where the ring rats and uh, the, the guy named Rico, who sells me my stenozolol, he calls me on this phone. Well, that phone obviously would be kept in a special pocket of your fanny pack if yeah, you're maybe a pro some, wrestler. Or maybe sometimes you'd take a little bit too many CBD gummy bears and you leave it up there on the <laughs> desk between the monitors. I don't know. I would that I had some CBD gummy bears right now. Ben, have you heard Dean Thomas's Stephen A. Smith impression? Yes, it's surprisingly good. First of all, all of the people out there in Comaniac listener land need to know What's going on with Dean Thomas's Instagram? Oh, I've been a follower for a long time. Because it's delightful. Yeah. You got him and Mola Wall uh, basically posting comedy videos. And they are, in opposition to the normal MMA comedy video, actually pretty funny. Yeah. Did you see the one they did where they were talking about what your cornermen should not sound like during yeah, the fight? I did. Yeah. It's delightful. Anyway, turns out Dean Thomas does a spot on. Stephen A. Smith yeah, impression. nailed it. You fucking kidding me? This thing is amazing. If you haven't seen it, go watch Dean Thomas uh, uh, dunking on Stephen A. Smith's uh, boxing video that he posted. Him hitting the mitts. Fucking kidding me. You fucking kidding me? It's outrageous. Anyway, go check out Dean Thomas on uh, Instagram. I love it. That's going to do it for round number... What are we? Just round number one? Just round number Whew, one. Yeah. God. We'll be right back with round number two. Go ahead, name me an, a women's MMA title that is worth a damn. Just any one of them over the years. You just really just any promotion. Any promotion for just where you're like, they had a vibrant women's division, and being a champion in that organization meant or still means something. UFC Women's Bantamweight, 2014. Yeah, I don't need a weight class. I'm just saying the organization. UFC. Cyborg has a belt there. Okay. Name another one. Bellator. Cyborg has a belt there. Name another one. Strike Force has a belt there. Rings. Invicta. Don't get the fuck out of here. <laughs> she now, Chris Cyborg, after this Bellator debut in which she beats Julia Budd for the women's featherweight title, she has Bellator title, UFC title, Strike Force title, Invicta title. It's if, like the Grand Slam. If Elite XC hadn't died, she would have got a title there too. Probably, yeah. Chris Cyborg somehow has been around for, it seems like, as long as there's been a women's division and has been dominant for as long as there's been a women's division, it seems. 34 years old, somehow. You know, you know what blew impossible. my mind is her being younger than Julia Budd when they put their, their ages up on the Bellator screen. Because uh, you're right, Chris Cyborg, she see, it seems like she's been fighting since we all were kids together. Yes. And somehow is still out here winning major titles. And against Julia Budd, man, against legitimate competition. 
against yeah. a legitimate women's featherweight who up until the arrival of, of Chris Cyborg had been the champion in that division. Well, and not only beating her, because this one to me, you got to see that a more experienced and patient and yet more a little more veteran sappy to Chris Cyborg in this fight. Because we all knew before, Chris Cyborg can do the gong and rush. The old Alexander Romelianenko stuff. I mean, she, she can. She practically invented it. She can come out there right away and put the heat on you and beat you up in the first round. And that was one of the things she really made her name off of, especially because you just didn't see as many uh, female fighters being able to put forth that kind of punching power and ferocity. But this was one where it, it went. You know, early on in the fourth round, it was pretty clear Cyborg is going to win. She finally sees the moment there and puts together a just a blistering combination to put Julia Butt finally away. But this was a fight where you looked at them physically and you looked at them even in like individual exchanges physically. And you're like, Julia Butt is not physically overmatched the way a lot of Cyborg's past opponents right. seem to be. Yeah. Like we'd seen Cyborg against much smaller opponents. We'd seen her against opponents where... Like, I remember going to an Invicta fight once where Cyborg punched a woman in the face, like, right away, first exchange, and you could see the thought process of the woman go, you know what, nope, I'm not even sure I want to do this as a career anymore. And we've seen her melt, like, much lesser physical talents in the cage. This is one where Julia Budd was physically capable of hanging with Cyborg in that fight, and Cyborg just didn't let her. Yeah. Just did not let her ever get any momentum going at all. And well, think about how hard that must be, even if you are a person uh, with the physicality of Julia Budd who can, uh, you know, withstand and counteract and in some ways match the strength and size of uh, Chris Cyborg. You can do it for a while, but yes. I don't, I mean, I don't know if it would be humanly possible to hang with Chris Cyborg's physicality over 25 minutes. I don't know if that kind of shape exists. Yeah. That's why if you're going to beat her, you got to go in and Amanda Nunes it and get it, get out of there in 50 seconds or whatever. Cause I just don't think that there may not be a person on the, on the earth who could like play that clinch game up against the fence or be underneath Chris Cyborg as Julia Budd was for much of this thing. Uh, into the fifth round and come away as the victor. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was uh, watching in uh, Julia Budd's corner, like between rounds where they are, you know, they're kind of getting increasingly like a, a sense of urgency there, right? Like, uh, Hey, we got to, we got to take the fight to her. We got to stop being on the defensive. We got to go attack her a little more, all that kind of stuff. And it's really easy to say yeah. when it's not you who has to go out there and do it. And you could see Julia Budd, like, you, you wanted to, like, give her the opportunity to speak up and be like, hey, this shit is harder than it looks right. out here. <laughs> it reminded me, and I wrote about it in my post-fight column, uh, reading uh, The Sweet Science by, by A.J. Leeling. And he talks at one point where, uh, talking to Rocky Marciano's trainer after one of Rocky Marciano's fights, and he was kind of asking, hey, why did the opponent go in there with that plan and that style against Rocky Marciano? Didn't he realize that that was a bad idea against Rocky? And the trainer's being like, hey, he probably came in there thinking he had a pretty good plan, but then, you know, when you go against a guy like Rocky, it's not like playing football because Rocky never gives you the ball. 
And it's the same way with Cyborg. Cyborg never gives you the ball, man. Like, she never gives you the opportunity to get a little off. She's not like out here being like, I'm going to hit you twice and then I'm going to stop and see what you do about it. Like, yeah. she is just always on offense and always forcing you to deal with what she's doing. And it's really hard to find a way. Like, if you can't hit her and hurt her the way Amanda Nunes did and, and really ad- manage to take advantage of Cyborg's tendency to if she gets hit want to come and get you back right away and played right into a a dangerous strategy there but if you can't hurt her if you can't force her to take a a backward step and you can't halt her offense and start your own like it's really tough she just doesn't let you into the fight at all yeah i feel like one of the mistakes we make in mma sometimes maybe in all sports i don't know is this idea of like uh, like you could have won if you had just done this, yeah. right? Or like if you had just trained takedown defense a little harder, or if you had just trained this one particular combination a little harder, you would have won. Uh, and obviously, a lot of that is the stories that fighters are telling themselves, uh, just to be able to keep on. A lot of times, the story is that they would have won if they hadn't lost. Yeah, uh, but in some cases, you're just not going to beat somebody. And I think Chris Cyborg is one of those people. Like, clearly, she can be beat. We've seen it a couple of times now, but. Most people just aren't going to beat her. Yeah. And it probably doesn't matter how hard you're trained. Probably doesn't matter what the game plan was. Probably doesn't matter that much if you're as big as her. She's just a special athlete in this sport and has been for a long, long time and continues to be. And that, to me, is one of the most amazing things here. Like, she's a fucking force of nature, seemingly has been for a long time and still appears to be, you know, capable of getting it done. Yeah, and I mean, that's the impressive thing is that she's still this good and kind of getting better in some ways. Her ability to figure out other things she can do other than just get right up in your face and punch you until you fall down in the first round. To see her take a little more patient approach and and wear an opponent down and just chip away until you can't take it anymore. What do you do now with Chris Cyborg? I mean, this always is the question we come back to, right? Yeah, that was the question I was just going to ask because Chris Cyborg and Scotty Cokes have the band back together at this point, (laughs) right? And you do wonder what they're going to do with uh, Cyborg as the Bellator women's featherweight champion. You're showing Marluz Kunin in the audience during this fight. Of course, Cyborg already has a win over Kunin back in uh, 2010. Third round TKO. One of the tougher fights for Cyborg at the time. Uh, Marlouz Kunin was. But we remember what happened when she was the Strike Force women's champion. We got into Jan Cuddles Finney territory. Yep. Like, we're basically, uh, you know, you're throwing people out there because, largely because you were putting uh, Cyborg on television and she was going to beat somebody up. That was the equation. So, how will Bellator play it? I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily think you can. Continue to walk the Jan Finney path. Bellator might have to come up with some slightly more, uh, you know, uh, like legitimate contenders for for Cyborg. But at the same time, I don't know that there's a real competitive fight out there for her yeah. in, in that well, division. I'm, and Bellator has some people now, though. They signed Kat Zingano, yeah. right, uh, in the fall and still waiting to see where that one's going to go. But Liz Carmouche could, could conceivably... Do that, right? Well, 
I mean, there's a significant size difference. Yeah, but I mean, if, you, if you're talking Bellator, it's not like you got a cast of thousands, man. Well, see, Scotty Cox had a little bit of criticism for the way the UFC had done the women's featherweight division, basically being like they weren't interested in building that division; they were just interested in being in the cyborg business. Okay, that's and, that's ironic, and you can't. That's irony. That's <laughs> you can't do it that that's way. Irony. And so now it makes you especially interested to be like, okay, show us how it's done. Show us how you build that division and how you do it other than just being in the cyborg business. One of the ideas somebody suggested in my uh, MMA mailbag was, hey, we've seen these Grand Prix have the effect of creating a sense of meaning. Like if you hold a, a women's featherweight Grand Prix to determine the next contender for cyborg, maybe that works. I don't know. I mean, maybe you just go on a long-term talent hunt. Uh, whether it's signing free agents, whether it's just trying to like find your own people. But the problem is you need to give Cyborg, like she's the minotaur in the labyrinth that must be fed. Yeah. And you got to find some people pretty quickly. Yeah. You don't have like two years to work up to finding somebody who's a credible challenger for Cyborg. Yet at the same time, pretty nice promotional chip to have if you're Bellator at this point. You know who I saw commenting on Twitter about paying attention to this fight before and after? Who? Your girl Gina Carano. You're going to look askance at you. You sitting over there in that chair looking at me out of the corner of my eyes when I bring up Liz Carmouche. Now you are going to voice the name. Scotty Cokes. Gina Carano. Let's, let's look ahead to a point in the not too distant future. Scotty Cokes has a show to put on CBS. He gets in a one of those armored cars full of cash money drives it up to the set of the Mandalorian season two or whatever, where Gina Carano is. And he's like, how'd you like to get fucking paid? Don't bring that evil into the world, Ben. Don't Over you here mentioning some... the name Gina Joy Carano. Gina, don't you sometimes just wonder what if, what if you'd been able to hold on to the mount position in that fight? Everything could have been different, Gina. What do you say? You know what is not a good idea if you're trying to book Gina Carano a fight? Don't accidentally send her a text where you call her a bitch. <laughs> okay, yeah. We, we've learned. I mean, every, that's clear in retrospect. Yeah. Now we know. <laughs> now Dana White has shown us that that's probably not a great idea. Not the best way to get Behind a deal done. 2020, Chad. That's true. That's true. That's going to go for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, in a week with no UFC event on Saturday night and a couple of relatively high-profile UFC events, most recently in the rearview mirror, one story that continues to make headlines is a bubbling feud between longtime UFC color commentator and all-around podcast phenom. Cultural phenom. Joe Rogan. And ESPN's Stephen A. Smith, a guy who makes a fuck ton of money, I think is the technical term. That's an industry term when you get to the status where you're making a fuck ton. He makes a fuck ton of money to be outrageous, let's say. Kind of his gimmick. Yeah. In the wake of 
Donald Cerrone's 40-second loss to Conor McGregor at UFC 246 a couple weeks ago. Stephen A. Smith, who was on the post-fight broadcast alongside some uh, some UFC broadcasters, had this to say about Donald Cerrone's performance, among other things. This man's got over 50 fights in his career for crying out loud, Smith said. You know how to fight. We've seen you. We've seen 17 submissions. We've seen 10 knockouts. Excuse me, step back and go like this. Okay, he caught me with the shoulder. I'm a little bit rattled right now. Let me catch my bearings. Let me catch my breath. So, some harsh criticism from Stephen A. Smith for Donald Cerrone. That said Joe he was disgusted. Said he was disgusted. Joe Rogan, of course, didn't take tremendously kindly to that. He responded on his podcast that he thought it was a bad look for Stephen A. Smith. He thought it was a bad look for ESPN. He thought it was a bad look for the sport. One of the things Joe Rogan said, which I do want to talk about in this round, it might be, to me, the most interesting question of this entire feud, is that he thinks mixed martial arts has to be treated differently than an ordinary mainstream sport. That you you treat it differently than, than you would uh, basketball or football or baseball in that, you know, you're going out there, you're doing a very dangerous thing, uh, you're putting your life on the line. He feels like, from a commentary standpoint, you got to treat it a little bit differently than maybe a stick and ball sport. Of course, Stephen A. Smith responds. You know he's going to respond. Uh, he uh, he basically cuts a, a Twitter video where he starts out saying all respect to Joe Rogan, which... You yeah, know, you know where that's going. Yeah, it's, it's not going to stay positive too long. That, that train only has one next stop. Essentially, Stephen A. Smith cites his his bona fides as a sports broadcaster, tells Joe Rogan, you're wrong, invites him essentially to check the record, bud, vis-a-vis viewership numbers, who Stephen A. Smith is in this business. Uh, it, it's probably exactly what you would expect, right, from a Stephen A. Smith response. And so... That's essentially where we are today. Uh, well, here's the interesting thing to me about his response is that he chose to highlight different aspects of what he said. And, he and Joe Rogan aren't even really having the same conversation no. here. And I think that he knows what he's doing. I think that he realizes that he can't stand on the merits of Donald Cerrone quit and fought like a chump and, and he sucks. And he can't really stand on the merits of his fitness as an MMA broadcaster because those of us who have been in the bubble, so to speak for a long period of time, we have a heightened sense of awareness for who these people are that come in from a mainstream sports broadcast or journalist perspective and don't really know what they're talking about. We've seen it happen time and time again. And we have a hypersensitivity to it just because of MMA's history and the history of the the fan base and the sport and everything. One thing that I thought that Joe Rogan said that is actually a pretty good analogy is uh, when he said, well, you know, they're, they're talking about it. And first he was saying Daniel Cormier and I would have had a completely different conversation and it would have been better for the sport if Stephen A. Smith was not there. Right. Um, and him saying, if either you or I was talking about cricket and we were on TV doing commentary on cricket, we would look out of place. It would be fucked up and real cricket fans would be upset at us. Like, that's... That is accurate. Like, yeah. that is exactly what it is. Like, the cricket people had a big broadcast, and they were like, ah, you know who's popular? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan says stuff. People listen to Joe Rogan. They'll watch the broadcast of Joe Rogan's on it. Let's get Joe Rogan in here to talk about the cricket. And Joe Rogan would be, like, trying to, like, do Joe Rogan stuff, but about a thing he doesn't really know about. And that's really what Stephen A. Smith is doing here. And uh, Joe Rogan knows exactly who 
Stephen A. Smith is and what his thing is. Like he in his other comments about it, uh, he he talks. He says this is a different quote here from Joe Rogan. There's a lot of currency in being Stephen A. Smith. He's really entertaining. That shit talking that he does. He's a guy that's fun to watch. He talks a lot of shit and he gets real loud and everyone disagrees with him. Look, it's made him a fantastic uh, career. He carries that over to MMA. I think it's a bad idea. Now. I don't know if I necessarily buy the, like, MMA is such a different sport that you can't do regular sports media hot takes with it. Because there's a lot of people in MMA doing regular sports media hot takes. Just a, just they're more in the space, and so we're more used to it from them. But, I mean, I see his argument that there is a certain, like, intimacy or emotional, like, physical raw thing about MMA where it is like, as we've talked about before sports without the metaphor. Yeah. But when you go out there and I think the thing that Stephen A. Smith deserves criticism for is don't throw, I don't care if you didn't think a shoulder shot in the clinch looked like it was so bad. He got his nose broken and his orbital fractured. You ever had your nose broken like in an athletic, like set, the moment after your nose is broken, you don't feel like doing a whole hell of a lot of anything. Yeah. You're, you're pretty disoriented, especially you get your orbital broken anybody is going to be in a moment there where they are vulnerable and somebody could jump on him. And so for Stephen A. Smith to sit there and be like, that guy just quit. He wasn't really there. He didn't show up tonight. It was his first pay-per-view. I think that he said it was his first pay-per-view fight. First pay-per-view fight. Which I guess he means the main event of a pay-per-view, but it's not like that is so... Like Donald Cerrone's been in big fights before. He's fought for the UFC title before. He's been under the bright light. It's not right. like he was just like, oh God, I can't believe all these people are paying attention to this fight. Like, One of the many problems, I think, with what Stephen A. Smith said is the guy that he targeted. Yes. Donald Cerrone, a guy who... Uh, we, if you've watched the sport for a long time, you probably have a good understanding. Some of us, I would say, have an encyclopedic understanding of who Donald Cerrone is. And we know what his flaws are, and we also know what his strengths are. And we know that he is a slow starter, and we knew that one of the reasons that he was in the Conor McGregor fight to begin with was because of these various ways that he matched up poorly with Conor McGregor's aggressive, left-handed, power-punching style. And so he did end up losing in 40 seconds. Now, however, as Stephen A. Smith would say... He would say, excuse me, right. and then he would... You can't go on TV and essentially talk about, essentially say Don Cerrone didn't show up or has no heart. Yeah. Because those of us who have watched the the entirety of Don Cerrone's career know how patently ridiculous it is to yeah. say that. I mean, it was a bad night for him? Of course. Like, bad showing for him? He would be the first one to tell you that. Yeah, too. and it was set up to be a bad night for yeah. him. Like, the reason he was there was that it was probably going to be a bad night for him. As for the question about, like... Bad is it bad for a bad look for the UFC, ESPN, and MMA as a whole to have somebody like Stephen A. Smith come in? Because we all know anybody who is familiar with like Stephen A. Smith's prior work, you know what he does. Yeah, he comes in here, he says this stuff, he does this weird voice cadence thing that makes it sound like everything he's saying is really serious and has a ton of gravitas to it, even though a lot of times it's the very opposite of that. And he gets people riled up and forces a He's just like a, a Twitter hot take come to life, and that's what his function is. But do you think that like, the UFC and ESPN are probably betting, well, there's going to be a lot of people, if they see Stephen A. Smith on the broadcast, they're like, this must be a for real major sports event. Yeah. Like, I, I recognize that guy. He's at the big stuff. He shows up at the big stuff, and they get him on, on camera for that. Yeah. Do you think that that outweighs the then having a guy who clearly does not know a ton about this sport and 
is just going to be out here saying some shit just to get people riled up and get a reaction. Do you think the, the positives outweigh the negatives? I think that it is always a calculated move to have Stephen A. Smith show up and do his and run his gimmick. Right. And I think it's it's a very calculated move uh, to allow him to do it in and around a UFC fight, a big time UFC fight where, you know, damn well how everyone in this sport is going to react to what he says and how he says it. Filthy casual. And they're doing, and so they're, yeah, they're doing that on purpose, yeah. right? He's just as Donald Cerrone was there because he was probably going to have a bad night against Conor McGregor. Stephen A. Smith is there because he's probably going to make you mad, and he's probably going to generate these headlines. Now they probably didn't foresee uh, a feud with UFC color commentator Joe Rogan, but at the same time, they probably would have taken that if that were on the on the table for them. At the same time, like knowing how tightly the UFC controls its own broadcast. I can almost guarantee you that if it were anyone else besides Stephen A. Smith, that person would not be back. That that person would probably not uh, be talking about a UFC pay-per-view on ESPN again. But it is Stephen A. Smith. He does get paid a fuck ton of money and a lot of people watch him. And I do agree that by virtue of the fact that he's going to come on and, and yell and say provocative things, it does make your sport seem like it's something worth commenting on, at least. Now, uh, does that mean that I think that it's a great look to have him there? I kind of agree with Joe Rogan because even though it's going to be one of the disconnects between the UFC and the rest of the mainstream sports landscape to say that you have to treat the sport differently than other sports, I'm not totally sure I 100% buy that. But I think that Stephen A. Smith's specific gimmick plays poorly in the MMA space just because those of us who have watched the sport for a long time understand what everyone is risking just by going out there. And also maybe it's a little tougher if he is being what you feel overly harsh on a multimillionaire basketball player as opposed to a fighter who went out there and got his whole shit broken for $200,000. Yeah. I think that, that that plays a role in it too. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, did you see this story? I'm looking at uh, Guillermo Cruz's MMA fighting story about how 66-year-old jiu-jitsu pioneer Helson Gracie was arrested. I think he's in Brazil, had just traveled back from the States to Brazil, and they found a bunch of weed in his duffel bag, essentially. Now he's been charged with drug trafficking. That'll happen. So I guess I'm just saying, what? 66-year-old Helson Gracie? Drug trafficking? What? Really? I am surprised, I have to say. Maybe it's all for personal use. He got the glaucoma. <laughs> maybe. Maybe so. For his rheumatiz. This is just like one of the stranger uh, turns of events. If you had said, pick somebody in MMA who's going to pick, be picked up for drug trafficking. Oh, I could come up with a list. Yeah. He wouldn't I'd be on it. Hundreds of people long before I got around to 66-year-old Brazilian jiu-jitsu legend... Helson Gracie. I'd come up with like 12 other Gracies before I get to him. <laughs> Jed, uh, my just saying, did you read the story that we had on The Athletic uh, prior to the Bellator's weekend by Greg Rosenstein where he's talking about uh, uh, Aaron Pico? And yeah. basically, it, it was an interesting story because, you know, Aaron Pico had been put in a tough spot and everything, very heralded very early on. And so people would not be satisfied to watch him crush cans. But then also, if you have him fight people more experienced, he's not ready for that yet. And, you know, he went out there, looked good in this fight. But also, it seems like he's kind of behind the eight ball in a lot of ways now. I want to draw your attention to this quote 
from a guy who continues to be one of my favorite and like low-key most enjoyably quotable fighters, Mr. Cubby Sampson himself. Okay. Cub Swanson. You have my attention. He talks about uh, Aaron Pico, who he's trained with. If you made your muscles really big, but your ligaments can't support them, you're going to break down. And that's what I felt when training with Pico. Now, I'm, I'm just saying, thank you, Cub Swanson, for highlighting one of my major fears. That my muscles will get too big. And like too big too fast to where my ligaments can't support them. Yeah. I've, been, I've, been, I've lived in fear of that my whole life. One of your big concerns has long been. Yeah, that my muscles will just get too big too fast. See, with me, it's more I'm worried about my entire skeletal frame. I'm worried I will pack on so much muscle that mm-hmm. I will essentially just collapse under the weight of my own uh, rippedness. Kind of like Bo Jackson, that I'll just, like, in walking, I'll just exert so much force yeah. that I'll, my muscles will rip themselves away Tear from the quad bone. getting out of the bed in the morning because you're just so strong. I'm just saying, if people ask me why I'm not going to the gym, <laughs> concerned. Concerned that my muscles might get too big for my ligaments to support. Got to take care of my ligaments and tendons, my skeletal frame, my just, man. Just saying. Can't pack on too much mass. Nope. It's dangerous. Anyway, that is going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We're going to have a normal week this week. We'll be back on Wednesday for the live chat. Also going to record the uh, Movie Club episode about The Proposition. Watching The Proposition. Have that out uh, probably Wednesday afternoon. And then back on Friday for the uh, for the Power Hour. Are, they, are you done with all the readings? Are we done with no, all I'll be driving stuff? all over Montana this week, man. But I'll be here Wednesday for, so we can do the live chat. Then I'll be back on Friday before we do the uh, Power Hour. Calendar says you're going to Great Falls on Thursday. Got Missoula tomorrow night at Fact and Fiction. Then I'm going to Bozeman on Wednesday for the Country Bookshelf. And then on Thursday, I'll be at uh, Cassiopeia Books up there in Great Falls. But I'm going to get up early and drive home on, Mon- on Friday so we can uh, do the Power Hour. You know why? Power rankings. I'm going to be hauling power rankings back. I'll be lucky if I don't get picked up by Kelson Gracie. Cops be like, what are you doing with all these power rankings, Mr. Dunn? One man can't have all these power rankings. It's not safe. I'm just saying uh, Chad has a reading in Missoula tomorrow night, huh? Be a shame if people were to show up there and, you know, hijack the Q&A. Man, someone hijacks the Q&A every time. I go, <laughs> That's what every a Q&A time is I read for. in Missoula. Powell's, my six-year-old niece asked a bunch of questions. Hijacked. Anyway. Uh, that's it for, for now. Catch us on Wednesday and Friday. We'll be back a week from today with another CME proper. But as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. So should I just come to the uh, Q&A and just ask a bunch of questions? Yeah. Ask me about the porridge business. I mean, most of the people who come to my readings all over the nation at this point are coming in podcast listeners, so they always seem kind of nervous about asking literary questions.